You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Who Arted is turning three years old at the end of October. Please help me celebrate that milestone by telling me your favorite episodes from the last three years. Go to whoartedpodcast.com slash vote to tell me your favorite episodes and enter for a chance to win a $25 Amazon gift card. And of course, be sure to follow Who Arted on your favorite podcast app. I feel like Who Art Ed. Who Arted? Mr. Wood Art Ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. I thought it's a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, once again, I have Tim Bogatz from Art of Ed University and Art Ed Radio. Thank you very much for taking the time. Well, Kyle, thanks for the invite again. I appreciate it. Uh, I didn't know if I was going to get asked back after last time, but uh, <laughs> I'm I'm pretty excited to be back again. Um, I I do have to confess I'm a little behind on uh, who arted. I think Ai Weiwei was the last one that I listened to, so I have some catching up to do. But uh, but you know uh, I I'm a loyal listener and I'm excited to be back again. So thank you. I got to say, I am really excited to have you back. And I cannot tell you how many people have reached out to me after that first time you were on um, and you were nice enough to have me on Art Ed Radio. I've I've definitely gotten a lot more listeners since you were nice enough to boost me, which is one of the things I've always appreciated about you and what you do with Art, Art of Ed and Art Ed Radio is, you know, you you lift up a lot of people in our profession and you help us learn from each other and make connections. And I think that is absolutely wonderful. Well, I appreciate the kind words, but yeah, I think that's, um, that's the goal, uh, you know, uh, the best part of just being connected online, being connected through podcasts is like you said, the ability to learn from each other. And so I think anything that we can do to, support that or enhance that is is going to be worth everybody's time. So yeah, I'm glad glad we can play a small role in that. You know, thank you. And today we're going to be talking about Frank Lloyd Wright and falling water and speaking of helping people and learning from each other. Um this is one that is on the AP Art History uh the AP Art History curriculum list. So um, for all you AP Art History students and AP Art History teachers out there, we're trying to help you out creating a lot of resources that um, will help you, hopefully help you get a little bit more from the test. 
Well, and, I feel like the pressure's on now when you say that. <laughs> if people are depending on our information for AP exams, uh, we'll we'll do what we can here. I I, I don't think it's a primary curricular uh, source, okay, fair, but fair. I, I think <laughs> it can be helpful for that AP art history cram session in the spring. There you go. Um, and if you're trying to see what this artwork looks like, if you want to see the design, it will be in the episode. Um, cover art that you can see on Amazon Music or Spotify or wherever you're listening, if it supports that. So Frank Lloyd Wright, he was born June 8th, 1867. He's actually from Wisconsin. I always associate him with the Chicago area. Maybe Mm -hmm. that's just my hometown bias. (laughs) But um, he is from Wisconsin. His father was a preacher. His mother was a teacher. So Definitely the kind of guy who probably had a way with words or at least heard a lot growing up in his household. And because his father was preaching and playing music, he traveled a lot in those early years. But they settled in Madison in 1878. I guess his parents divorced 1885, which I feel like that was kind of rare back then. For It was, yes. You know? But because they were strained sort of financially, as you can imagine, going from, you know, two parents to single parent household raising him, Frank Lloyd Wright had to work his way through college. This was back in the day when a person could do that. Um, He studied engineering and he actually worked, I guess, for the dean of the University of Wisconsin. Uh, 1887, he left Madison for Chicago. As I said, I kind of always associated him with Chicago. He wanted to be an architect, but he, I think he worked in some engineering type, you know, entry level stuff. But eventually, you know, after working at a couple of firms, he got a, a big break, his job with Adler and Sullivan. And the Sullivan in Adler and Sullivan was Louis Sullivan, one of the first, like, I think of one of the first modern architects, you know, one of the first people who was paving the way for tall buildings. I mean, he was the guy who gave us form follows function Mm -hmm. as that, like, modernist ideal. I guess Frank Lloyd Wright worked directly under Sullivan for six years. That was actually, like, part of the contract. He wanted to build his first house shortly after he got married, which... Of course, who doesn't want to get settled down? You get married, you have a home, all of that. So he got the money from Sullivan, who agreed to loan him the money to build his first house, but he had to work for him for five years. And he built that first home in Oak Park, which, if you're not familiar, is a beautiful suburb of Chicago in the inner ring. It's This is one that was kind of on a personal note, kind of painful for me doing the research because I moved a year ago. I live in the Chicago suburbs and right at the start of the pandemic, we were like under contract on a gorgeous house in the Frank Mm. Lloyd Wright district of Oak Park. But it just like, it fell apart when the lockdowns were happening and we couldn't get our, you know, but uh, it's a gorgeous area that I die a little inside every time I think about (laughs) (laughs) Um, where I am now is perfectly good though back to our main subject Sullivan actually fired Frank Lloyd Wright in 1893 
This is one of those things that I have read many different accounts on. Some say it was because Wright was working too much on his own commissions and side projects, kind of distracted from his actual duties at work. And others say Sullivan was basically just jealous of Wright's talent. It was kind of a nasty breakup, but after that, Wright opened his own firm and he developed what we now think of as the Prairie Style. Mm-hmm. And if I can just add a little bit of something or maybe throw in my opinion on uh, on the breakup. Yeah. You know, I I think a big part of it is we're just dealing with two huge egos. Like both of these guys thought very highly of themselves. And I think they they butted heads a lot, you know, and Sullivan was you know, sort of the older mentor type and uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was the younger mentee. But I mean, Wright's talent was just so obvious. Like he's just so incredibly gifted and so naturally talented that, you know, that that came through. And so I I think, you know, there there is a lot of, like you said, ego and jealousy. But at the same time, like Frank Lloyd Wright was, completely working on his own basically had another firm going where he'd come like he's under contract with with sullivan but he'd only come in for like three hours a day and then he'd spend the rest (laughs) of the time just working on his own stuff and so yeah i think um it probably a, a little bit of professionalism uh and a little bit of jealousy but yeah it all sort of I don't know, sort of bubbled up uh, until, yeah, Wright got fired. But even then, like even after they split, even after Wright had been fired, Wright still kind of looked back to Sullivan, like you said, as, as kind of an inspiration. And, you know, they're both, um, I guess, dealing with like the Midwestern landscape. Uh, they both, you know, have this goal of creating this, you know, style of architecture that's unique and like uniquely american you know they both wanted something that that was developed in america and they stood out from architecture that was happening everywhere and you know i'm sure you'll talk more about sullivan's style but you know just uh he's always big on simplicity uh you know having an open floor plan in his house is a lot of emphasis on like the horizontal lines uh he loves symmetry uh, and, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright took a lot of his inspiration from a lot of these ideas, you know, all the way from like the, those big picture things, you know, with, you know, horizontal lines and, and simplicity all the way down to like having a central fireplace is kind of like the main focus of the house. And so, you know, Wright was inspired by all of that stuff. So even though they, they did split, you know, Wright still looked to him, uh, as, as kind of an inspiration. Yeah, he absolutely did still look to him even after the breakup, because I know as, you know, a Chicagoan for for pretty much my whole life, you know, I've I've seen a lot of these things. You know, the Sullivan Center was right across from my dorm room. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I've yeah. I've seen a lot of these buildings um, in person. I always find it funny when people think of like Louis Sullivan and the simplicity, because I think of him as like 
this transitional figure where some of his stuff was kind of simple, but there's also a lot of ornamentation. Like the Sullivan mm, Center, yeah. now it's the Sullivan Center, it used to be the Carson Peary Scott building, had that really elaborate ironwork around the mm-hmm. ground level to sort of mm-hmm. draw the v- people in. Because while he said form follows function, he also said the building's identity lies in its ornamentation or something to that effect. Um, and I think Frank Lloyd Wright kind of was the next evolution of those ideas. And something that's kind of interesting, as you talked about their great egos, one of the things that I remember reading about Louis Sullivan was his ego essentially destroyed his career because he would like make fun of clients and and oh. say like like I'm not going to design that you have terrible taste and stuff like that. Wow. And so <laughs> so Louis Sullivan died penniless and Frank Lloyd Wright along with some other architects who kind of learned from him and respected his legacy actually paid for his burial. So in mm. Chicago, in Graceland Cemetery, you'll see this lovely, lovely marble tombstone um, for Louis Sullivan that was paid for by Frank Lloyd Wright. So, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So like even after even after all that, they still had some deeply rooted fondness. And so like like we said, after that, Frank Lloyd Wright he goes out he. He he starts making his own way. He makes it kind of official that he's running his own firm. Mm-hmm. But as he's setting out to build his career, he's also, like you said, trying to create a distinctly American style of architecture. Because a lot of stuff was really European-inspired. You know, we have the Victorian houses and stuff like that. Um, but... Because he's in the Midwest, which for those who are not familiar with the American Midwest, very flat. Um, He emphasized the prairie style with those horizontal planes, relatively simple geometric shapes. But I think what a lot of people miss in his work is his use of light, the way that the, the natural light becomes almost an element of the design and just the open feel of it is something that I have always really been, been impressed by with Frank Lloyd Wright's work, you know, his window placement and all of that stuff, the size of the windows, it, it really, it really made use of the light and other natural elements in the landscape, I think to, to make the most of the space. Yeah. And if I can add something to that too, um, you know, that, that didn't necessarily stay contained to the Midwest, you know, um, like you said, there's a lot of flat ground. And so he'd build houses that were flat, you know, those horizontal lines that we've mentioned, things like that. But then, you know, if he's building uh, a house in the forest, you know, or in the woods, he would make everything out of wood. 
you know, and to, to make it blend in with the landscape. Or if the house is being built in the desert, then you have like a wide open floor plan, just super expansive and build things out of stone or materials that, that would be found in, in nature right around there. I mean, falling water is a great example of that. We'll talk about it a little bit more, but he just spent so much time trying to, uh, sort of mimic nature in in what he was building and have his designs fit seamlessly in nature no matter where they were built. Yeah, I think um I th- I think you're right that seamlessness was central to his philosophy. I think his great quote was something to the effect of it should not be a house should not be on the hill or on anything. It should be of the hill. It should be a yes. part of that landscape you know, the home and the landscape each happier for each other. That's, of course, my butchering of it. He said it in a much more elegant <laughs> manner. But the the gist of it is the same. I I should have written down quotes, but I, I, I'm more of a big ideas guy. So he's out on his own for like 15 years, and he just gets burned out. And... This is one of those moments where I'm like, oh, I I hate to even say he left his family. He left his family, went to Europe in 1909. He basically fled with um, like a client of his. Yeah. Oh, big drama. Um, If I can succinctly just sum it up. I I mean, how could there not be big drama? (laughs) You you just leave your family and and flee off to Europe. But yeah, you're right. He uh, he was designing a house for uh, his neighbor. And in the process of working with a neighbor, he actually fell in love with the neighbor's wife. And uh, his neighbor's wife was named Mayma, or that was her her nickname, yeah. Mayma. And uh, yeah, while they were working on this house, um, they 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 fell in love with each other. And I mean, they there's like reports of Frank Lloyd Wright and Mayma like riding around in a car together, like scandalous for like 1906 or whenever this happened. Uh, and so it became this huge dramatic thing. And so. Mayma and Frank Lloyd Wright, they wanted to get together. They both wanted to get divorced from who they were currently married to. I think Frank Lloyd Wright's wife was named Catherine. Uh, but they they would not uh, or could not get divorced. Like their spouses would not agree to a divorce. And so Frank Lloyd Wright and, and Mayma end up going off to Europe together just so they could be together because they, they could not do it in the United States. Um, um, and if I can just put a quick plug yeah. in, there's a, a great book called Loving Frank. Uh, and I think the author is Nancy Haran, if I remember right. But it's this great mixture of like fact and fiction um, talking about sort of the the affair between Frank Lloyd Wright and Maimon. So uh, there's that's good reading if uh, if you're interested in learning more about uh, all of the drama that goes with that. Who doesn't love a good bit of drama? I, I, I'm trying not to be the guy who's, you know, doing the look at the, the more sordid elements, you know, I'm trying to break my true crime addiction and all of that sort of stuff. But there's so much to this that is like, it's a soap opera. You know it, what I mean? It really like is. A yes. real life soap opera. And I love the, I love the fact that, and, and this is, a, a dark thing to love, but I I love the way you said 
the spouses refused to to be divorced it's it's it reminds me of was that seinfeld where they said like both of us have to turn our keys we both have to agree to the breakup yes you know um I shouldn't laugh because this was real painful drama in real people's lives, but they're dead now. So I don't think it's going to bother them. No. Um, so yeah, they fled, they went to Europe, 1909. He continues working of course though. And while in Europe, he contributes drawings, photos of buildings that came out in a, in a couple of publications. So, like, by 1911, he's getting international attention. Needless to say, he doesn't spend all of his time in Europe. He did come back to the U.S., but when he came back, all of the friends that he had known in the Chicago area had heard his wife's side of the story and... Obviously, he didn't look good in that side. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, they were they were basically exiled. Like they were, he and Maymont came back, and they were just outcasts. Like they couldn't even live in Chicago, and um, that's what took them up to to Taliesin in Wisconsin. Because like there was there was nowhere for them to be in Chicago. Like they were completely exiled from their entire social circle. Yeah, and on the topic of Taliesin, this is. A tragic turn, um, you know. Without getting into too many of the gory details, do you want to do you want to share what happened there? Um, you know, I'll just uh, say, like you said, without being too flippant about it or getting into any of the gory details, Mayma was killed along with uh, two children and some employees um up at Taliesin and, and like it was an axe murder like it was um pretty it was vicious pre- pretty vicious that's exactly the word i was going for and like i said we don't want to dwell on it here but if i can give you another book recommendation <laughs> um i read this book uh like two summers ago when we visited Taliesin uh and it's called death in a prairie house um mm-hmm. Don't remember the William Brennan or Drennan, I think is the author. But yeah, it's called Death in a Prairie House. And if you want to know the story about the murders at Taliesin, uh, Death in a Prairie House is a great book that that can sum it up for you. Yeah. So um, you know, at this point, if you think about it, like Frank Lloyd Wright, he left his first family, starts a new one, all of his friends you know, from that time period, don't like him anymore. And then his second family is is taken from him. I got to think he kind of realized family man was not going to be in his epitaph. Um, So he decides to just dive into being a great architect. You know, he he escapes in his work, which I think that is a natural coping mechanism for a lot of people. When you're overwhelmed in one domain, you focus on another where you can feel successful and feel some sense of control. Still, by the late like 1920s, you know, he's having some some setbacks. Like some of the projects aren't being built. He's considered to be like a great and influ- influential architect. But a lot of people thought like his time had passed by the time like 1930 or mid 1930s had rolled around. That of course changed with 
1935's Falling Water. Uh, Falling Water was sort of a comeback for Frank Lloyd Wright, and after the break, we're going to get into the details of that iconic piece of architecture. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. So now looking at Falling Water, this was, like I said, his comeback piece in 1935. The Kaufman family gave Wright the job designing their summer home. Their son had been at the Tally... I cannot say that word. Taliesin. Taliesin. He'd been at the Taliesin Fellowship. Basically, that was... um, That was... the, the Taliesin Fellowship was the one in Arizona, right? That was his summer home where he mm-hmm. was doing some teaching, correct? Because yeah. he had so, Taliesin in Wisconsin and in Arizona. Yeah, and so students would come and live at, at Taliesin and learn from him as well as, you know, work the land and do the farming and do the upkeep of the house mm-hmm. and things like that. And so... You know, Frank Lloyd Wright uh, said this was, you know, to to get them to appreciate nature and the surrounding areas and see how it works with the architecture. But a lot of people just think he wanted the students there to, like, do his work for him, like, <laughs> take care of the property for him. So you can decide, you know, what uh, what the real goal was. But, um, but yeah, a, a lot of architecture students came through and and learned a lot from him. Yeah, so one of those students was the son of of this wealthy family, the Kaufmans up in Pennsylvania. They wanted to have their summer house out in nature. They wanted it to be a retreat. And, you know, they're nature lovers too. Frank Lloyd Wright wants to build this house that doesn't just look out on the waterfall. He wants it to be a part of that waterfall and a part of the landscape. And so he came up with this cantilever design that, like, it, the building itself has these, like, shelves of concrete that just, it looks almost like stacked stone. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And, uh, you know, I think it, it goes back to what we talked about before about, you know, blending into the surroundings or blending into the landscape, you know, just that sort of idea of organic architecture. And it's just, you know, like you said, it sits, you know, in the waterfall and he just, he makes it a part of, 
the landscape that surrounds it while still having just you know making an architectural masterpiece with just the engineering feats and you know the details that go with it and it just it's just really powerful the way he he sets that into the landscape or as you said earlier you know he, he makes that of the earth yeah so i mean it sounds to me like you and i are both having the same first initial gut reaction that it just it feels so uniquely integrated into the landscape you don't see that in a lot of other buildings certainly not of that day i mean today we hear a lot about biophilic design and you know bio meaning life and living things and and philic meaning liking or loving so you know the biophilic design is really accommodating nature and bringing nature into the home i mean in in some ways, Frank Lloyd Wright was about a hundred years ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. It really was. No, I, that seems like hyperbole to say, but it's it's absolutely true. Like he he was so far ahead of of everything that was happening, which was, I mean, it's just incredible work. And I I think one of the things that that just gets me all the time. I I'm used to seeing the standard picture of the exterior with the. The sort of uh, terraces, terraces that are hanging mm-hmm. out over the water, like that mm-hmm. that cantilevered design. And for listeners unfamiliar, when I say cantilevered, what it means is it's it's sort of anchored into the side, so we don't see visible support posts underneath it. It just seems to float out yeah, there. Looks like it's floating over the top of the waterfall. And I mean, that is gorgeous. But then when you look at it from another angle, there's like a staircase that just goes down like to the water too. Right. And and there's this natural stone, the stacked stone built up like on the chimney and in the, the columns, the flooring is stonework. Like it's just integrated all throughout. Yeah, I mean, it It looks like the floor of the house looks like the floor of the riverbed or the floor of the waterfall. And it's it's incredible how he mimics the natural stone that's all throughout there and then puts it everywhere throughout the house. Like you said, the, the walls and the floor and just everything that, that you see is just mimicking or or using the same materials as what is found in in the landscape around there and like you said that's part of where it gets its powerful imagery how it just like you said blends into the landscape and really looks like a natural part of everything that surrounds it yeah it's it's really this amazing it's like it's like magic the way that he transforms something that has so much steel and glass and concrete to make it feel natural, right? Like we see on those terraces, like there's floor to ceiling windows and, you know, steel framing around those windows and stuff, but it just feels so open and airy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he he loved uh, to put windows on both sides. Like if you stand at the east end of the house, you know, he loved the open floor plan all the way to the west end of the house and you could see out the windows uh you know like no matter what direction uh you're looking you can see all the way through the house and into the landscape which again just gives it that that feel as being part of nature or part of its surroundings 
Yeah. Um, every time I look at it, I'm just blown away. And I, I love his attention to detail, too. Um, it's one of those things where, like, you, you look at these little recessed lights in the ceiling and the, the trays and uh, within the ceiling and the way that everything is just so unified. Um, yeah. And I, that was something that I wanted to, to mention about, you know, not only this house, but Frank Lloyd Wright's work in general is just the attention he gave all the way down to the smallest details, you know, and he just coordinated all of his designs, like the windows, look similar to the carpets which look similar to the doors which look similar to the lamps and everything is coordinated and you know he would even design all of the furniture like he didn't want his clients to bring in their own furniture he wanted to design and build the furniture and make that part of the house you know like continue those design elements not only how um from the house itself but everything that was inside of the house or inside of the space you know it's all part of this grand design uh, of what he wants to do. And, you know, it, it may be that he's just a control freak. I don't know, but like at the I same time, he like, was. yeah, he just, he loved the details so much that, yeah, just everything in the space is, is a conscious decision by the architect and the way everything ties together is just absolutely incredible. Well, and I think that's one of those things that separates a good artist from a great artist. In any medium, it's always in the details. It's always that person who thinks through how all of these elements come together. Um, <laughs> I remember being in school and my professor telling a story of Frank Lloyd Wright visiting one of his former like clients and friends and you know on a social occasion mm -hmm. and he's rearranging the furniture you know like um and i i don't know if that's true but man i want it to be true oh, it's, it's it just very believable feels like it would be in line with him um but I, like i say i think that sort of I think you only reach that level of greatness in your in your professional creation and your career if you have that eye for detail and you're making sure that everything's working together at all times. And yeah, I mean, and like the just the idea of of falling water is just this great example of just executing a vision you know and just being able to to see you know this is what i envision for this landscape and you know taking that huge vision and then just seeing it all the way through from you know the engineering to the structure to the windows you know all the way down to those tiny tiny details that we talked about and everything in between it's just it's just a masterwork throughout it is, and now it is uh, a museum, right? I think the it was used as the family home or their sort of like weekend home mm -hmm. for 25, 26 years, and then they donated it and the surrounding land uh, to the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy. Yeah. So it's been a museum since 1964. Okay. Uh, have you been there? Have you visited? I have not been there. I, I'm I, kind of kicking myself because I, I I was just in Pennsylvania for for my summer vacation, 
And we went like we went like everywhere else in the state. I don't know why we didn't go to Falling Water. I think it's because I have two small children. I was gonna say I don't know if it's super <laughs> exciting for kids. No, I have not been there either. But you know, just between uh, reading about it, uh, seeing so many images, and my father-in-law is an architect, and so you know, I've heard all the stories about it too. So between those, I I feel like I've been there, but no, I I have not either. I would I would love to. See see it in person because i feel like i would appreciate it even more but um i've not yeah. been there i've been to other frank lloyd wright houses and Same. you know i mean they they're they all have this just in some ways it's weird because they're bigger on the inside you know yeah. what i mean like like he, the the layouts that he creates and his his use of the space is just like so well conceived it feels bigger inside than it looks from the exterior and it, like i say it's it's this magic that he does I, you know i i don't know how he does it but he does it it's yeah it's a thing of beauty yeah. and i'm wrapping it up i want just a three-point rating scale and where should this hang the louvre is this something to look at the lab, the lab. is this something to learn from or the loop. British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's a the loop joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Well, we know it's not the loop. I mean, if it's, you've listened to us for the past 10 minutes, like, we've but it's, just it's been got the water it. running. Right? I, that's that's <laughs> very true. Um, I need to throw out one last fact, and I think that'll inform my decision here. Um, the American Institute of Architects, uh, just the big professional association of architects, uh, awarded Falling Water the uh, best all-time work of American architecture. They think it is the greatest uh, example of American architecture that's ever been built. And so if uh, the people who knew know more than me uh, think it's the greatest thing <laughs> they've ever seen, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that it needs to go in the Louvre. I, I think that's fair enough. You're not going to get much of an argument from me on that. I mean, the piece literally is a museum. I was How just going to say, I was going to say, you could make a good argument for the lab because it is literally a museum, but yeah, it, I, it, it is one to learn from too. I, it's, it, it, every time I look at it, I still just wonder like, how, how do you mm -hmm. make that work? Like, I've seen it. I've seen like I've seen the designs. I've seen pictures from all different angles, and it's still just like, how do you come up with that? Oh, it's, absolutely, it's so and, well done. You know, and I think uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, his, his whole career, he was just constantly experimenting with ideas and materials and engineering and construction techniques and. You know, falling water is the culmination of all of that. Like he's, it feels like he's taken everything he's learned over his decades of building and just sort of put it all together into this this one piece. And you know, it just it has all of the qualities of of everything he's done. And like you said, it it just it's a masterwork. It is. It is. Um, so I think we can leave it at that and just say thank you very much for taking time once again to join me and talk about another great work of art. Yeah, I always it. love it. I appreciate you picking one that uh, that I love so I could geek out about it. So I, <laughs> I hope it wasn't like too much of a gushing love fest, but this is an all-time great piece of architecture. So thanks for having me on to, to chat about it. It's been really enjoyable. 
No, I appreciate it. Thanks. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.